our nine-year-old would like to know if you have ever been disqualified from a race. Oh, good question. Yes, I have. Oh. Uh, very good question, nine-year-old. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's not a touchy subject at all. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie. Sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is Olympic racewalker Mark Mundell. He's currently living in Canada, but will be representing his home country of South Africa at the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. This will be Mark's third Olympic Games, and he's currently the South African national record holder for the 50-kilometer racewalking event, as well as the continental record holder. Mark gives us the lowdown on his racewalking career and his plethora of experiences along the way. He's such an interesting, wise, and well-spoken man, and we can't wait to cheer him on, along with Canadians Evan Dunphy and Matthew Bilodeau, in the 50-kilometer racewalk event on August 6th in Tokyo. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Here I am. Hi, Mark. We have never met a racewalker before, so this is very exciting, and I'm endlessly fascinated by it. I'm glad that you're willing to chat to a race walker. There actually are two Canadians that are competing in the same event, um, one from Quebec and one from Richmond, BC. Do you train with them? I had an opportunity to train with Evan Dunphy a couple of years ago when I was in Australia. We were on a training camp together there. Okay. He's actually one of the firm favorites going into the race in Japan oh, wow. um, to medal. Uh, he finished third in Doha in 2019. And then the guy wow. that I train most frequently was Matthew Bilodeau. We raced together in Slovakia earlier this year, and we've been on the circuit a couple of times together. So he's mainly the person that I get a chance to train and race with and looking forward to meeting up with both of them in Japan. That's exciting. Are there other South African athletes as well? There's two other South African race walkers competing in the 20 kilometer. So the two Canadians and myself, we're in the 50K. Okay. Wayne Snowman, who is a friend of mine that we've grown up racing together since 2004. And then another guy called Lebohang Shange. Um, he finished fourth in the World Championships in 2017 in London. A couple wow. of people that looking forward to reuniting with post-COVID yeah. or during COVID in the bubble. A games in a pandemic. Yeah, very, very different. Yeah. You have something to compare it to because this will be your third Olympics? Yes, I was fortunate to compete in London in 2012 and then in Rio in 2016. So looking forward to be third and over. So <laughs> can't wait. Uh, third and over, did you say? Is this your last? Yeah, so final race, final opportunity to compete. And then it's me until just raising kids after this. Singular kid for now, and then multiple kids potentially in the future. Ah, uh, so you have one child right now? Yeah, just going on 13 weeks. Oh, wow. Quite young. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. young. <laughs> Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm part of that group of athletes that decided when the Olympics got cancelled last year that you never know if you can put your life on hold again. So let's try for the family. And I mean, it's not exactly Malcolm Gladwell's science of timing it for January or February, but yeah. we did what we could. <laughs> so race walking, let's kind of go back to the beginning. How did you get into race walking? I'm literally following in my father's footsteps. My father competed for South Africa in the post-apartheid era, competing in their 50-kilometer race walk as well. And so just when South Africa came out of isolation in the early 90s, my dad competed from 1993 to 1996. And being a young kid, I literally followed in my dad's footsteps watching him and would go out and run next to him and probably when I turned 12 I got into race walking myself and then started competing and one of the big benefits in a minority sport like race walking is that barriers to entry are pretty high so if you don't know about the technique and you don't know about the rules and you don't have a coach you don't really get exposed to it. so I had the rules, I had the coach and I had the parental support and I was able to compete as a 12-year-old competing under 17 uh. for part of my career. And that gave me an opportunity to get exposed from a young age and then kept going with it. That's awesome. And how tall are you? I'm 189 centimeters, so give or take six foot three. Okay, so you're about the same height as Lowell. I just saw in some pictures that you looked quite a bit taller than the other athletes. And does that give you an advantage? It doesn't, it doesn't. You've got a bit more an advantage with stride lengths potentially, but I find that most of the people I compete against are significantly shorter and they just seem to have a much faster hip and stride turnover. From my experience, most of them are a lot shorter. So I do stand out. I'm also 
in the vicinity of 77 kgs, which is probably a good 10 kgs heavier than the majority of the people that I'm racing against. So in a lot of the photos, I am referred to as the big South African. (laughs) (laughs) One of the lenses that we like to look through is seeing how these challenges in life can turn out to be some of the things that set us up for success. The obstacles becoming opportunities, the setbacks becoming setups. And one of those early pathway changes for you is an injury from your dad, one of his challenges that led into this path. So my dad was an active rugby player and cricketer growing up, so it's predominantly South African sports. He would often be in a competitive environment and then playing on the wing in rugby, he injured his knee, tore his cruciate ligaments going in to score a try. And at that stage, he wasn't financially capable to fund the surgery and tried to do a lot of the makeshift rehab activities, actually kind of ironically going in for that knee surgery now. So it's something that's plagued him for almost his entire life since high school. But because of that, the doctor said that he couldn't run and do any weight-bearing activities that affected the knee joint. So one of the big challenges he had was trying to find something that he could do without injuring himself further. And walking was what the doctor prescribed. And then one of the big family attributes is he's very competitively minded. Mm -hmm. So he tried to look for a competition to see who could walk the fastest and literally (laughs) found race walking and then started doing events. And back during the isolation years, there's a big race in South Africa called the Comrades Marathon, which a lot of athletes aspire to complete. And that's almost 90 kilometers from a town called Peter Maritzburg down to on the East Coast to Durban. And that's the race that he set out to do during the apartheid years. And then post-isolation, he had all the fitness and could compete nationally and then eventually internationally. So that's how he got involved from a knee injury. And his career started in his early 40s. And I'm trying to retire before I even get there. So, (laughs) Wow. So did he compete at Olympics? No, he never made it to the Olympics. He's a full-time teacher and he took leave in 1996 to try and get himself in contention to go to Atlanta Olympic Games, but didn't manage to achieve the standard. But that's what his big aspiration was. And I think had isolation ended a couple of years earlier, he might have had a better chance Mm. in his 30s kind of in the prime age, but as a, a 40 year old raising two children, it was a bit more of a mm-hmm. challenge and limited exposure for him at that stage. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have had his support and backing throughout my yeah. career. Out of yeah. his adversity came my success. Yeah, he was kind yes. of your stepping stone and now he can live yes. vicariously through you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what's happened because he was able to come to the 2012 Olympic Games uh. and to 2016 in Rio and had Tokyo been available and not COVIDed, yeah. he would have definitely been there. So yeah. that must Very have been so sad. special for him to cheer you on at those Olympics, hey? It's been a fantastic family affair and I've got some wonderful memories of yeah. the family sitting on the sideline and cheering me on, especially yeah. just in front of Buckingham Palace in, in London. Yeah. yeah. Good times and etched Aww. into my memory. Well, good thing it's etched in because you can visualize that when you're in Tokyo. <laughs> you can pretend that <laughs> yeah, they're standing there. there'll be no supporters anywhere. <laughs> That'll be wild. At least the games are happening after everything that they said wouldn't happen. Yeah, Yeah. speaking of another obstacle, you've been trying to qualify for your last games. It was all set up for last year and then COVID hits and there's this big pause. How did you handle that pause and what have you done through the last year? Really good question because the challenges that have happened, nobody could have really foreseen In 2019, I signed up to do a a master's course. So just giving you a bit of background context. And I was trying desperately to qualify to go to the Olympics. And I got my first qualifier out the way in March of 2019, because you can qualify in the time frame. And then I went and studied a sports master's in Lausanne in Switzerland. So I left my wife in Canada and went and did a full-time master's program to be around the Olympic capital and train past the IOC headquarters every day whilst Mm -hmm. trying to improve my qualifications for life after sport. And in that same period of time, I lost my mother. She passed away from cancer. So it was a really tumultuous time for me. Mm -hmm. But I was focused on this one race in March 2020 and planned to get in and go and race in Europe. And coming across from Switzerland to Slovakia was easy. And up until the Monday before, everything was 100% perfect. And on the Tuesday, they canceled all races in Europe and everything went on that shutdown. That was a really difficult time for me because all the preparation to get to this race and put everything on hold 
I mean, it was difficult for everyone globally, but in my context, the race I was therefore ready to go and do, I was racing in March and then qualify to go to Tokyo in, in August and then come back to my wife and family and mm -hmm. get on with life. And as it's turned out, I raced 120K the entire calendar year in 2020, which fortunately for me was a personal best. So if I never raced again because of COVID. <laughs> Go out on a high. <laughs> <laughs> and then it took me quite a long time Lol, to reignite the motivation because I took off pretty mm. much from April once everything had got shut down until almost September. I didn't race walk once. I just couldn't bear the idea of not being able to race or train and the uncertainty about the Olympics. But then when they confirmed that it would be happening a year later and the qualification for World Athletics opened up again on 1st of December, got into training again. But being in Canada, it's one of those challenges where it's really balmy in round about minus 40 in February, 40 Celsius. That was a big challenge to prepare for a new season almost completely on the treadmill and uh, indoors. And then the way that everything worked out was I had one race, one opportunity to go and mm. do a performance in Slovakia. So literally all eggs in one basket and trying to focus on the mental preparation, the physical preparation, everything that was done indoors for a race that was going to be outdoors. Then going through all the COVID regulations and testing and the protocols and PCR tests and flying to Europe. Mm. All meanwhile... Whilst my wife was at that stage, 33 weeks. Oh, jeez. And we were trying to juggle whether she was going to have an early delivery. I knew that I could get back at 37 weeks from the race. I'd do my 14 days of quarantine and I might have a couple of days before she delivered. So a little bit of pressure, yeah. mainly self-inflicted. Mm. When you're under the pressure, that's how coal has turned into diamonds. And that's what mm. I felt I needed and fortunately, I came away from that race with a new continental record nice. and a new national record, which was obviously a personal best. And then it was a waiting game to see if my best was good enough for yeah. the rankings because it came down to not an individual time because I missed the automatic standard of three hours 50, but it was my aggregated performance to remain in the top 60 in the world. So it was quite an unpleasant couple of weeks and months not knowing if I was going to go, where I was going to go. Long story short, I finished 60th out of 60 <laughs> on the ranking list. Wow. So if I'd finished 61st, I wasn't going to Tokyo. I finished 60th and I am going to Tokyo. Oh, so wow. that's how close it ended up being. And the number of times I just moaned at myself for choking, even though it was a national record, even though I'd done my best I could, the emotional roller coaster that was the last 18 months was quite tumultuous to say the least. Mm-hmm. And then throw a baby in there. First baby. That's. <laughs> Did you get home in time for the birth? Yes. I actually made it with a couple of days to spare. Oh, nice. wow. that's also down to the wire. You're a down to the wire kind of guy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the point of having deadlines if you're not going <laughs> to use up all the time to meet them? <laughs> exactly. There's so much to unpack in your story. You just increased Team Mundell, so that's pretty awesome. You have this new child yeah. and a new cheering squad, so that's awesome. We can't do this journey alone. And your wife is your biggest support. She's on the team. She's helping this dream come true. Can you tell us a little bit about how she's involved in your story and what you've learned from her? She's been part of my journey since 2010. We started dating in 2010, just after the Soccer World Cup in South Africa. So many of the things in my life are organized around this sporting event or that competition. She was very instrumental in helping me to finish my master's. I was busy with my first master's at that stage. And she joined me in year four of that master's and helped me to finish my two-year master's in six years. So if it wasn't for her, it probably never would have been done. And it was also just very influential in helping me to qualify for my first Olympic Games just to support the encouragement. The way that she got involved in my training, came on the bike with me, would come out running occasionally and just fully engaged in what I was trying to do, but also supportive. And that's something that I've tried my best to be able to reciprocate through with our move from South Africa in December 2016 to Canada, where she came across for a work opportunity here as a family physician in Canada, where we knew nobody. We came through in a very different environment. The, going back to a sporting analogy, like, Cool Runnings, the movie where they land in Calgary and it's give or take minus 30. 
our exact experience coming from Durban, <laughs> we flew out at plus 33, we landed in Calgary and it was probably minus 18 oh, and we had South African winter wear. So I remember that especially, but we did it together and we were part of that journey together. And so much of us getting through her first couple of weeks and months in Canada, got her settled, got her stable. And then I was able to go back to trying to compete. And although I qualified for the world champs in 2017, I wasn't selected by Team South Africa, but managed to get myself back in for 2019 and this long, arduous attempt to get to 2021. The kind of support, it's the 25 to 30 weeks of build-up. It's mm -hmm. encouragement when you're going out every day when it's raining or snowing, or in this case, we've just had this heat wave and it's 33 degrees and 90% humidity. And it's that kind of reassurance that it's all going to be okay. And I've been incredibly blessed to have her supportive during this time. I've been able to train for the games and her being on mat leave to be able to look after our young son. And we are tag teaming, but there's so many variables at the moment. I've been sleeping in an altitude tent for the last seven weeks. Mm. We part of each other's lives at the moment, but we also just, hey, tag, you're it. She'll say, I fed him, I changed him, I've done this, I'm going to sleep. And that's something that, in the best scripted plan for the Olympics would never have been part of my <laughs> game plan. But that's the 2021 plan. 2020 mm. was clear. 2021 is just hazy. Yeah. But we're doing it together. And I think that, Lyle and Julie, is what's been so important and so impressive for me, just her undevoted support during the good times and the bad and the ability for me to try and reciprocate and support her throughout her career and what she's been doing. So I cannot put down enough how important it is to have a devoted loving and supportive partner. It's just the, the kind of trifactor for me. How long-term do you think your Canadian stay will be? Are you planning on staying permanently? That's a really good question. We came over with the intention of fulfilling the five-year contract that my wife had signed with the Alberta Health Services. And that is obviously a bit delayed because of maternity leave. So that will carry on until about this time next year. And then we'll be in a position to reassess our future. At the moment, we've really enjoyed living in Canada and we've really fallen in love with everything that it has to offer. And it's given us a fantastic springboard to be able to travel pre-COVID mm -hmm. and to see different parts of not only North America, but also Europe. So we've really been incredibly blessed to be here. And I think we will stay here for a couple of years to come. And this is where we raise our first son for now. You should just go from country to country and just have a new baby in yeah. every country. It's difficult to remember where they've got their yeah. citizenship. Yeah. We are very blessed to have quite a few South African doctor friends in our lives and top quality. You guys sound amazing. And Alberta is blessed to have you. Okay, back to race walking. Okay, first of all, Ooh. do you walk quickly just in regular life? It would be a wonderful experience for the two of you to watch the two of us when we go to any shopping mall. Because I'll walk down, let's say, for argument's sake, I'll go to Costco and I have an idea of where I'm going and I just walk off and I get there and I'm looking at the item and then I turn around and I wait and then I've got to come, my wife's only five foot one, give or take. So then I've got to look right down and try and meet her at eye level. And then I can see her coming off behind me. It's really quite frustrating. Even when we, we walk and push our son with a stroller, I just get into not race mode, but I just walk at a really brisk pace all the time. I'm significantly faster by mistake. I'm a fast walker and I don't notice it until I get stuck behind somebody who is not. <laughs> so I get you there. But how fast do you walk when you're race walking? So when I race my 50K now, three hours, 53, it's about a 4.39 per kilometer, which is just under 47 minutes per 10K. Wow. The best in the world will walk a three hour 33 and I'm a 3.53, so I'm about 20 minutes behind the world record holder. And I wow. imagine that the Olympics will be won in a time of around about three hours and 40 minutes, which is 44 minutes per 10K. Wow. Wow. Do you think the heat will slow that down? Yeah, I think the heat will play a bigger role. If it's high humidity, then possibly a three hour 50. But it could be very similar to what Doha produced in 2019, where the winning times were quite a bit slower. Mm -hmm. But over a 20K, my best is a one hour 26, 18. 
which is give or take 418 a kilometer and the best in the world will walk a one hour 18 which is about 354 wow um, give or take per kilometer so sub 40 minute 10k is comfortably probably yeah 39 minute back-to-back 10ks and that's a decent running pace i know and you're doing this at a walk amazing do you ever run like if you were to go for a 10k run how fast would that be so i do quite a bit of cross training but uh i'm not particularly fast i've run a a sub 250 marathon but again that's not super competitive when you're looking at people breaking two hours for the marathon (laughs) um, in the best conditions but i enjoy my running and it's something that we do recreationally Often I'll go to an event with my wife and she'll run the half marathon and I'll end up doing the 42K or she'll do the 10K and I'll do the half marathon, but we try and get to sporting events together and partake and participate together. So that's something that we've enjoyed. And I think one thing that we might look to do post Olympics is marathon tourism, where we try and get into a Boston marathon or a New York marathon or Chicago and, and try and make a trip of it where other qualifying for me and entering for a charity for her at this stage in her career. And I say entering for a charity at this stage of her career because her focus is on medicine and her focus is on starting the family. Could you walk us through the Coles notes of race walking? Can you break it down? First kind of thing, just more in tongue in cheek, is you've got to have really thick skin and you've got to be able to put up with a lot of verbal abuse from a lot of people that have no idea what's happening. So that's the first thing. That's just a a character trait that you've got to be able to do because people point, people laugh. And when people don't understand, they point and laugh. So that's one of the the tongue in cheek sides of things. But the first rule of race walking that uh, differentiates it from running the most is that when your heel makes contact with the ground, the knee has to be locked. So in running, you have a bent knee. And for a lot of older athletes, you get what's called runner's knee, which is a, an accumulation of impact on the knee because it's jarring every time you land. And that's a big problem for a lot of athletes. So the big differentiator for walking, which provides a lot of longevity for athletes, is the fact that the knee is locked on contact with the ground. The shock absorption, instead of being in the knee, is all the way through the quads and into the glutes. And then the second one that differentiates it from running is that you've always got to have a part of the foot in contact with the ground that can be seen by the naked eye. So not a video slow-mo that you see on TV occasionally during races, but as the front foot is making contact with the heel, the back toe of the other foot is just about to let go. And that's what the judges are on the course for to identify that you don't have what's called a loss of contact phase. So one part of the foot, as far as possible, is on the ground at all times. And that's when they do slow-mos, you'll see that that they're trying to identify that. One of the other things that predominantly sets race walking apart from other events is the need for judges. So similar to gymnastics and to diving and some of the other artistic events, race walkers require judging on the route. So in our case, we're on a 50K race, we'll have 25 laps of two kilometers where the judges will walk across the island in the road and see you going northbound and coming back southbound and be able to evaluate your technique over multiple occasions throughout a 50K event. Similarly for the 20K, it's on a 1K loop. So 500 meters up, hairpin bend, 500 meters back, hairpin bend, and it's a much quicker event. So the judges are able to see the athletes a lot more frequently. Mm. And for the rules of the race walking, you invariably have six to eight international judges on this course. And they will issue the paddles for either loss of contact or knee bending. Is disqualification common? Very much so. There are two different ways that it generally happens. So in the faster event, the 20 kilometer predominantly, and then for people at the front of the 50K race, what is predominantly the case is loss of contact. So they're going so fast and because they're striding as optimally as they possibly can or trying to get the longest stride in, they're overreaching and very similar in effect to a long jumper trying to get the maximum off the plank, jumping into the long jump pit or the triple jumper the walker will be, they just don't have that plasticine that's there to say you're over or not. So it's a subjective thing. 
And if a judge feels that they are infringing, they'll give them a caution and then they can give them a disqualification paddle. So that's in the 20K. In my perspective, in the 50 kilometer, when technique becomes a bigger factor and fatigue. So especially after 35K, so around about the three hour mark in the 50K event, technique becomes the biggest challenge. And in my perspective, athletes will have a higher tendency to lack straightening of the knee. And that's where bigger challenges happen. So they will predominantly get the caution for knee not bending because their technique is disintegrating towards the end of the race because they've been pushing at maximum effort for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that a lot of public aren't familiar with is that in a marathon, the men are running for around about two hours and 10 minutes. And in the women's race, they're running for around about two hours, 20 to two hours, 30 for the most part in the 50K walk at best, they're going to be racing three hours, 35. And so much of that equates to what happens in the final hour, the fourth hour, where nutrition and acclimatization mm -hmm. to the conditions is so important. And within reason, it's definitely the longest of the track and field program, the 50k walk, but probably with the exception of the men's road race and cycling, it is the longest single event at the Olympics. What do you do for nutrition? Do you have stuff with you or do you get your coach toss you stuff on the side or? Good question. On the two kilometer loop that we get to race on, we have an aid station. So okay. our team manager coach is on the aid station and we'll prepare multiple different bottles. So in my case, I'll probably prepare 25 to 30 bottles of an isotonic solution, something similar to Gatorade. I'll alternate with some 22 gram gels and potentially caffeine tablets, maybe an ibuprofen, depending on how things are going in the race. And then for the last 10Ks, some caffeine gum or Coca-Cola. Each athlete has got their own set of drinks and nutrition plan that they've been training with. Mm. For me, I try and average close to 80 grams of carbohydrates per hour, but I'm a heavy sweater. So I'm sweating probably two and a quarter, two and a half liters an hour. So I'm trying to get in wow. maybe six liters of fluid in a four-hour event. And I know that I'm going to lose probably eight liters so it's such a balancing act, trying to stay hydrated, trying to yeah. not cramp up. Yes, uh, exactly that, Julia. It's just really difficult to be eating and not to eat too much that you suffer from a disrupted stomach or bowel yeah. movements during the race. And there's so many variables in a four-hour event. Yeah. Do you ever have to pee during the race or are you just sweating so much that it's just all going out through sweat? For me, it's not a normality that I have to deal with. Okay, good. But to put it into context, my most recent race in Slovakia, I don't think it got much more than five degrees and it still took me nearly eight liters of fluid before I could pass a urine sample after the race. So oh, wow. it was snowing in the last 10 kilometers <laughs> uh, and that's kind of my element, but yeah. I was still that dehydrated. So... I don't know what it's going to be like in Tokyo, but in Doha, I probably would have needed close on 10 liters before I could pass a urine sample oh, um, wow. post-event just to try and get up to it. And then for the rest of the night, I'm peeing, but oh, I yeah. mean, up until that time, <laughs> it just takes so long to rehydrate and stabilize again. That's so interesting though, how you have to know your body so well and how it responds to the different temperatures when you're working and how much fluid and the carbohydrates and everything, just balancing all that you need, depending on the temperature and the race length and stuff. That's, there's a lot that goes into this kind of stuff, eh? <laughs> but one of the things I've tried to do here is we built a heat chamber where I've got wow. a treadmill inside my garage with a tent over it, surrounded with cling wrap. And then I've got a humidifier, a crock pot, a pair of heaters, a garage heater, so I can try and simulate close on 35 degrees and 75% humidity. And just this evening, I was on the treadmill for an hour, just trying to teach my body to adapt to those kind of circumstances wow. so wow. that it's not a huge shock to the system when I land in Tokyo and it's surprise. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Training with specificity, training with the end in mind yeah. and heat acclimation for Tokyo has been one of the conversations since it was announced. When do you race? My race is on Japan time, around about six in the morning on the 6th of August, which is around about three in the afternoon, Alberta time on the 5th. Oh, that's a good time. The 20K walk is on the 5th of August in the afternoon. So it's a 2.30 start, so right in the heat of the day. 
Mm. And then oh. the 20K for women is after the 50K, also at 2.30 in the afternoon. And I imagine from the marathon discussions, you'll be aware that the race walks in the marathon are relegated to compete up in Sapporo. Yes. Upgraded. I don't know which way they're going mm. with it yet, but they definitely know we near the Games Village or in Tokyo. So that's a it's a bit of an adjustment as always. Totally different regulations, totally different Games Village vibe. Mm. A lot of uncertainty at the moment. And about February last year, the IOC, in conjunction with the organizing committee, moved the marathon and race walks up to Sapporo, predominantly as a result of the difficulties experienced by athletes in Doha with oh, both yeah. the marathon and the race walks. And they felt that it would be a better opportunity potentially for performances if it was in Sapporo. And now with COVID, the regulations and restrictions are quite unique for athletes. They're very different games. Oh, for sure. What's the hottest you've competed in thus far? Even though it was at midnight starting time, Doha was by far the worst conditions I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. When was that again? So Doha was the World Championships in 2019 in Qatar. Okay. And they moved it from the traditional period in August to a cooler time in late September, first week of October. And it was still pretty brutal. If I recall correctly, possibly a third of the field didn't finish. Yeah, that's what I was remembering too. Yeah. Do you remember the temperature? I think we started at about 33 and it might have dropped down to 28 by 4 a.m. in the morning. And then humidity was mid-70s, but it oh. definitely wasn't a pleasant experience for me. No. No. Because it was so much warmer, instead of my entry time of around about 3 hours 56 minutes, I really suffered and ended up walking the slowest time of my career. Oh. I'm sure you're not alone. I'd be surprised if there was someone who's like, oh, that was the best. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be friends. <laughs> we have a little part of the podcast where we like to check into the power of words and what these words mean to you and how they reflect. So I'm going to ask you a series of words in this Word Bird Athlete Edition. And the idea is for you to just reflect on it. What does it mean to you? How does it impact to you? Or how does it relate to your life and your story? Wonderful. I love the questions you guys have been asking. This has been really Really enjoyable. Okay. Go for it. Awesome. Okay. So what do these words mean for you? As long or as short as you want to unpack these. Plan. What does plan mean to you? It definitely means understanding what the end goal is and working towards that. I feel like I'm a meticulous planner and the adage, I adore spontaneity, provided it's meticulously planned, <laughs> is kind of how I live my life. So even in my training, I plan a spontaneous weekend because I know that that weekend is my off weekend. Yes. So I can plan around doing anything or nothing, but I plan for that. So it drives my wife a bit mad, but that's just how planning for me works. And that definitely helps explain why the last 18 months of uncertainty has been so challenging, hey? Yeah. You're the kind of guy you say, plan your play and play your plan. 100%. Yes. I love it. I think that's a very much a football quote as well. Yeah, and, and you live that out. That's part of how you're trying to live your life. Has that had to adapt? Yes. <laughs> I definitely subscribe to that and very, very favorable that know what you're trying to do, put it in plan and then work towards it and get, get a supportive structure in place or team of yeah. people in place to try and make sure it becomes a reality. Yeah. They're wonderful. I heard that quote from a Mark Mundell ever heard of yeah, him? We're going to quote that to Mark Mundell. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I Lovely. first heard it. <laughs> we did some Mark Mundell binging. Okay. These are words coming out of what we've heard themes, so I just want to reflect back. Next word, balance. Definitely important in terms of everything that you're trying to do in life. Um, I've at times tried to over-focus on my work-life balance, my work-sport balance, my work-relationship-sport balance, it's definitely something that I aspire to try and get right. But in times like where I'm at now, the pendulum is so heavily sport mm -hmm. that it's scary if I look at it. And fortunately, my wife's able to pick up a lot of the slack because my balance mm -hmm. is basically try and get my eight hours sleep, try and spend more time in the altitude tent. There is no balance to anything else at the moment, but I'm very fortunate that she's so incredibly supportive. Yeah. And trying to balance me out on the pendulum. 
balance is incredibly essential. Yes. And yeah. there are times in life you can get really out of balance, yeah. over-focused on one thing. And I'm in that phase now. Yeah. A new dad, a husband, an elite athlete doing your masters. There's been a lot. And I've heard it said that actually to do great things, you can't be fully balanced. There are moments you have to go out of balance in order to do great things and achieve great things. There's a cost. It's just about coming back to a balance and kind of renegotiating those things in a later time. So I hear that in you. You're going to be out of balance for this period, but come back and reconnect with son and wife and some other areas of life when you get back from Tokyo. And also thank you for squeaking us in. And yeah. let's, let's chalk this up to an achievement, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> in the ideal world, I would have loved to have been able to finish my Olympic career and then start the family. That yeah. didn't work. So now it's finding the balance, being able to prioritize, plan this play and then yeah. play the plan. And it's, yeah. it's all about understanding everything that you're dealing with in that moment and yeah. not losing sight of, again, the bigger picture. So I, I find I'm in that space right now, every day, every, <laughs> every moment. Day. That leads me to the next words, high performance. What does that mean to you? I think it's a conscious pursuit of the next level of competition. So high performance to different athletes at different phases in their career means different things. The aspirations continue to change the more you fine tune your performance and you aim for the new peak. In my career, my aspiration was to get to the Olympics. And it took me 16 years to become an overnight success <laughs> because that was the dream. But once I'd broken through that barrier of meeting the qualification that had always just been this huge mental hurdle, meeting the hurdle was never the challenge. Then it was trying to excel. So the, my high performance in my early years when I was trying to get to Olympics was qualify for the Olympics, qualify for the Olympics, qualify. And now it's aim to see how close you can get to the podium, aim to see if you can get into the top 10. And so my perspective of high performance has changed. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Next word. We'll make this the last word. Suffering. <laughs> what does suffering mean to you? If you can't be fast, you've got to go far. And that's kind of been my narrative throughout my career that anybody can finish an event, but can you go further than somebody else? Can you suffer for longer than somebody else? And when the race gets really tough, the person that knows how to suffer will get across the finish line because their goal is to finish irrespective of time or position. Whereas some other people that aren't inclined to suffer, when it gets tough, they stop and they just call it a day there and there. So for me, I've always been a sufferer. And I know that by virtue of doing the 50 kilometer race walk, it's all about a suffer fest. And it's the person that can still maintain in the fourth hour that is going to excel and sometimes even into the fifth hour. But that's the quest that I set myself up for. I purposely try to undertake things that help me to suffer so that in a controlled environment, I can suffer so that when it's an uncontrolled environment or a test event, it's my default setting. What would you say would be the most common injury in race walking? From my perspective, the majority of athletes would probably get to a position of overtraining so overtraining fatigue syndrome and compromised immune system oh, more than anything else. Because the wear and tear on your physiology isn't as severe as running, most people would overtrain and do mm -hmm. too much and get into uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. From my perspective, most injuries are sustained from cross-training, from doing other activities oh. in the off-season or socializing and I'm a walking disaster. I broke my toe in 2019, eight weeks after qualifying for the World Champs, just at a friend's barbecue. I kicked a chair to death and oh, no. broke my toe. And that put me out of, so nothing race walking specific, but oh, one no. could potentially argue that my immune system was compromised and I was fatigued from traveling and backwards and forth. Accidents happen yeah. because of training for such a prolonged period of time for a big event. Yeah. That's something that, gets missed by a lot of people that yeah. you build up to a big endurance event that you spent 30 odd weeks preparing for 20 weeks like fine tuning the last 10 weeks you're in pre-race mode getting into that zone and the fatigue that comes from that yeah you don't notice in the race because you've tapered 
but it's why so many endurance athletes take three to four weeks off after a big marathon or a big 50k just to allow yeah. your body to recover but also the mind to recover yeah, so and that's sure. that three to four week phase is where i think most injuries happen oh. so it's not a sports injury necessarily oh. but it that's been my experience in my career at least just from my perspective I think from childbirth and stuff, my hips are all wonky. So when I watch your guys' hips swing like that, it makes my hips hurt. So I was wondering if there were hip injuries, but that's not a thing. You guys are just used to that, I guess. There is predominantly in women, it's called snapping hip syndrome, where moving the hips a lot with training and it overstretches and there's a bit of instability in the pelvis and then joining onto the hips. I'm not very familiar with it happening in men. I'd be interested if race walkers who have had babies have more hip issues. That's when my hip issues began. So anyways, that would be my downfall if I was a race walker. <laughs> Could carry on a little well, you mentioned a couple of things. One is that race walking, it's this repetitive use and getting worn down and the need for recovery. And the other part is this is the longest track and field event other than road racing, which is longer, but it's not as hard on the body. So this is arguably one of the hardest on the body events in the Olympics. How do you repair? How do you recover? What are your top recovery tools? In season, I try and get in to see a a sports massage therapist at least once a week or on average once a week, just to try and get the lactate out. In the past, I used to use one of those machines that helps flush out the body. So you recovery pants. I can't think of the brand just off top of my head now. but Like, like the Normatec? Normatec, there we go. <laughs> Quite frequently, ice bars just to try and help with lactate removal after training sessions or going into a pool or stream. And then also just trying to make sure that I'm sleeping enough, prioritizing family time, but trying to make sure that everything is as optimal as possible to fast track recovery. And then nutrition plays a a really important role. Maintaining energy, maintaining the system throughout the season is really important. And Mm -hmm. then post-season, taking a long enough break so that you can start up again is really, really crucial. Awesome. Great answer. I would be remiss to forget to ask this question. Our nine-year-old would like to know if you have ever been disqualified. From a race. Oh, good question. Yes, I have. Oh, uh, very good question. Nine-year-old. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's not a touchy subject at all. Uh, <laughs> I was racing in Tunisia in 2005 at an, in an African Championships, and I was probably very tense. It was my first senior team at that level at an African Championships, and it was pretty hot up in North Africa. And I think one of the big challenges I had was I was just so stressed that I had to do well and had to to perform. And my stride was super choppy. And that loss of contact phase, that was me. And I think I was disqualified before I even got to halfway. And I remember coming back from that and working with my coach at that stage on trying to identify what we had done wrong and plan a new strategy. Going back to your other words from earlier, find the new balance of racing but in a much more controlled and relaxed manner. And I've managed to maintain my technique ever since that really devastating day. Possibly I just made sure I've been slow enough not to get disqualified. I felt that that was a a very pivotal moment that, again, I learned from the multiple mistakes I made over a very short period of time in that race and have implemented that change um, ever since. Well, I do love that response because that's Christian, what nine-year-old. Oh yeah. The, yeah. the eight-year-old asked about pace, which you already answered. So thank you. Um, but no, we often try to educate our kids on how you often learn the most from failure. So that answer is very helpful. That's a wonderful life lesson for all kids and all, all athletes really is yeah. to find a way to overcome the obstacle and, and yeah. learn from it. Because otherwise there's no point in going back to the race again, if you haven't learned something from it. Mm-hmm. A follow-up to that one of the things i try and do myself and then i try and get my athletes to do that i coach is to get them to reflect on before the race how they want the race to go what they think would be the ideal race and then a post-race reflection this is what i did do this is what could have been better this is how we would learn to go on to the next one. So obviously after Tokyo, I'm not doing that because I'm not, there's not going to be another race. But for all the other athletes that are still building up to other future races, that's one of the big lessons. 
set out a plan, play the plan to the best of your ability and then reflect on that plan. Did you achieve it? Were you able to get everything right and break it into segments like the night before, the meal before, the breakfast routine, the pre-race and warm-up in the race, analyze it and try and improve for the next race. So great lessons for your kids. Great lessons yeah, for, for everyone. Sure. Yeah, this is the lessons that the failure is not to learn from those difficulties. And so can we keep, can we keep learning? One last question, at least that I, do you have any more questions? Yeah, no, I was just going to shout out our cousin Ava for connecting us. Then I was going to ask you if she has ever told you that you look like another cousin of ours named Theo, has she ever told you that? I don't believe so. Well, at least via Zoom, you look like our cousin Theo. So, okay. Anyways, what's your question, Lowell? Just on Ava, it was really lovely to meet Ava and Jesse when we came into Rocky Mountain House. And they were in the community here and we got to know them both. And Ava worked with my wife and they were colleagues. And then they immigrated to British Columbia. So that was really difficult for us. Uh, but hopefully post-COVID times, we'll be able to meet up with Jesse and Ava and get a bit of time on the island with them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, they're good people. Ava grew up in Ontario and I grew up in Alberta, so we didn't see each other very much growing up. But then a few years ago, she lived across the street from us. She did residency stuff in Lethbridge. So we got to know each other oh, lovely. really well then. We made up for lost time. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. The power of good people, the power of relationships. Yes, and connecting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Connecting and community. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is too deep for a podcast, but we'll see. I'll just kind of throw you off. But it's been said that when you know your why, you can deal with any how. What is your why? Going back, is that Simon Sinek? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Nailing it. And it's oft quoted by Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Ah, my why was always, was I good enough to get to the Olympics? And I always believed that I was. And I think one of the most prominent things from my career is that I always knew what I wanted to achieve and I could see what I was doing. And I'm going to come back to the why. When I was in primary school, my grade seven leavers shirt, people could write anything on my school shirt because we still wore uniforms in South Africa. And they would write a message at at the end of primary school. And I remember my best friend at the time had written, I look forward to seeing you on TV at the Olympics. And then on my grade 12 leavers shirt, so finishing high school, a friend of ours from the class wrote a very similar message. And when I go and do talks at schools, I take these two shirts and talk about it's not only that it was what I wanted to do and what I believed that I was going to do, but all my peers believed that I was going to do it as well. And so I believe that it's very important to live the life that you want to achieve such that the people around you believe in it as much and if not more for you, that it becomes a formality for you to achieve it. I think the the real big question is to know why you want to do it. And I always wanted to get to the Olympics for myself. But as I've grown older, I realized it was something that my dad had never had the opportunity to achieve and people of his generation. And I felt that I had the opportunity, I had the ability, why not? And then it took me 16 years to figure out the how, but I knew why I wanted to do it because in the apartheid era of South Africa, so many athletes had never had that privilege. And I go back to watching a in 1992 Olympics with my dad and South Africa winning their first medal and the 1996 Olympics with um, Josiah Tugwani winning the men's marathon. And those are just aspects of my childhood that I remember that kind of manifested in what I wanted to achieve, my why, and then finding different people in my life to make the how possible. So lovely man search for meaning it's a fantastic quote as well i love how he talks about the unintended consequence of a pursuit of happiness the phrase that he talks about that if you pursue success it's kind of the paradox that you won't achieve but if you pursue being the best you can the unintended consequence of success powerful awesome. you're well spoken you have passion we can feel it we are cheering for you as you go off to your last games know that you are loved and know that you have a whole team team mundell and we are joining team mundell right now to uh yeah, team taylor's on. on board Woo! <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much it's, it's been a wonderful privilege and again just so lovely to talk sport to talk about passion and 
so often just get as an athlete get caught up in the nitty-gritty of focusing on just race and just the next thing and the next thing and the next thing are really lovely to have some really good questions and if it's not too much to ask to kind of do a summary sometime after the race or when I'm back from mm. the games and say, this is what I thought. This is where it's at. Yeah. Eight year old. This is the answer to the pace question. It was yeah. such a pace. <laughs> Nine year old. This is the opportunity. I hope I don't get disqualified <laughs> that understanding the different things of what went into the planning and then mm -hmm. what happened in the play. We'd love to chat again. We'd love to. Thank you for taking time in your busyness. Good luck on your plans. Yeah, can't wait to cheer you up. Oh, thank you so much. Awesome. Have a lovely evening. Thank yeah, you, Team you too. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Mark Mundell representing South Africa at the Tokyo Olympics. Our first South African guest mm. on Obstacles and Opportunities. Our first international guest. Yeah, living in Bring Alberta. It was so great to speak to him today on his preparation to Tokyo, flying out and competing in just a few weeks. This is really exciting. Yeah, that he even squeaked in a visit with us. It makes me feel very special. Thanks, Mark. Mm -hmm. So again, this theme that we're probably hitting everybody over the head with, obstacles and opportunities. <laughs> in case you didn't notice it in the title. In, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> um, that's our lens. But this goes back right to his father's struggles. His father's injury in sport turns into this opportunity to do race walking. Now Mark is competing at the Olympic stage. It's just really interesting. Otherwise, he would not have likely found this. Yeah, I was wondering before we learned more about Mark, how race walkers even get into the sport. I feel like it's not something that's easily accessible. So do all the race walkers have super cool starting stories? guess we're going to have to start doing a survey. <laughs> but yeah, this beautiful story in his life, this passion starts out of his dad's struggles and having to adjust to all of his plans being thrown off during COVID and the pandemic and how that changed his family planning and his retirement, his education. So using the athlete's mindset, he can suffer, he can do hard things, but having to pivot and adjust and creating that high performance mindset all the way through. At the end of the conversation, I asked him about his why that helps him get through the house. And the quote is often attributed to Viktor Frankl in the book, Man's Search for Meaning. It goes before that as well. He references Simon Sinek in regards to this. And we went and looked it up, fact check, with Lowell and Julie. And this is actually a quote by Friedrich Nietzsche. And the quote is, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And that's a really powerful statement, a really powerful question. And Mark was able to say that he had that why in himself, but it was also enough of a why that other people believed in it as well. And that's helped him all these years later get to his dream of competing at the Olympic Games, which is pretty neat. And now he's moving that and going to his why of reconnecting with family and, and moving to this next chapter. So very exciting. Two master's degrees, three Olympics, pandemic baby. He's still younger than us. It makes me feel old. <laughs> Just we are a little old. <laughs> No, uh, no race walking uh, Olympic medals. No, in, these in hips. <laughs> Anyways, thanks, Mark. And thank you to all the listeners for once again investing your time into our podcast. We appreciate it. Yeah. And this is the first podcast that is going out during the Olympics. The Olympics have officially started. This is the celebration of many athletes pouring themselves into passion, into sport, into overcoming. And there's many stories out there. So we hope you're enjoying the Olympics as we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We are. Until next time. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.